you want to turn, if you're not there already, to Ruth chapter 2. I'm going to read the whole chapter because it's a story, and we're just going to keep reading through the story. But since it's so long, I'm going to let you stay sitting, and then I'll have you stand as we'll pray afterwards, since I know most of you aren't as good shape as I am to keep standing this long. <laughs> Ruth chapter 2. I knew, I knew by saying that I'd get some people to stand. So if you want to stand, you can, out of pride. <laughs> no. No. If you'd like to stand, go ahead. So Ruth chapter 2. Daniel preached on Ruth 1, and so this is just the story continuing on. Now there was a wealthy, influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. One day Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it. And Naomi replied, All right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. And as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. Now while she was there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you, he said. The Lord bless you, the harvesters replied. And then Boaz asked his foreman, Who is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? And the foreman replied, She is the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters, and she has been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes' rest in the shelter. So Boaz went over and said to Ruth, Listen, my daughter. Stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other fields. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. See which part of the field they are harvesting and then follow them. I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you are thirsty, help yourself to the water they have drawn from the well. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done? To deserve such a kindness, she asked. I am only a foreigner. Yes, I know, Boaz replied, but I also know about everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the day of your husband's death. I have heard how you left your father and mother in your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. Well, I hope to continue to please you, sir, she replied. You have comforted me by speaking so kindly to me, even though I am not one of your workers. At mealtime, Boaz called to her, come over here and help yourself to some food. You can dip your bread in the sour wine. So she sat with his harvesters and Boaz gave her some roasted grain to eat. She ate all she wanted and still had some left over. When Ruth went back to work again, Boaz ordered his young men, let her gather grain right among the sheaves without stopping her and pull out some heads of barley from the bundles and drop them on purpose for her. 
Let her pick them up and don't give her a hard time. So Ruth gathered barley all day. And when she bit out the grain that evening, it filled an entire basket. She carried it back into town and showed it to her mother-in-law. Ruth also gave her the roasted grain that was left over from her meal. Where in the world did you gather all this grain today, Naomi asked. Where did you work? May the Lord bless the one who helped you. So Ruth told her mother-in-law about the man in whose field she had worked. She said, the man I worked with today is named Boaz. May the Lord bless him, Naomi told her daughter-in-law. He is showing his kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. That man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. And then Ruth said, what's more, Boaz even told me to come back and stay with his harvesters until the entire harvest is completed. Good, Naomi exclaimed. Do as he said, my daughter. Stay with his young men right through the whole harvest. You might be harassed in other fields, but you'll be safe with him. So Ruth worked alongside the women in Boaz's fields and gathered grain with them until the end of the barley harvest. And then she continued working with them through the wheat harvest in early summer. And all the while she lived with her mother-in-law. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these stories that you have included in your word. Um, Not just fables, but historical stories that occurred to give us a glimpse of both ourselves and you, how you work. And Father, I ask that as we just spend a few moments this morning looking at a piece of this story, that you would encourage us, you would challenge us, you would lead each one of us afresh to the hope that is in you as our refuge. In Jesus' name, amen. Joy White was tormented for 23 years by the constant remembrance of the day when her 19-year-old baby was kidnapped from Harlem Hospital by a lady that she'd, who was dressed as a nurse that she handed her feverish baby to thinking she was a nurse only to return to the hospital find out the lady had disappeared never to be heard from again. As I read the story, I thought it captured Naomi's life. Absolute hopelessness. That's the way Naomi feels in this story. Absolutely hopeless. Carlina White, growing more and more suspicious of her real background when her supposed mother, Anne Petway, could not produce a birth certificate or social security number, contacted the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. 
And Carlina Hope, to me, is kind of a picture of Ruth in this story, pursuing hope. (laughs) The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, just this last week, if any of you read Google News like I do, just this last week helped reconnect Carlina with her parents, Joy White and Carl Tyson. Isn't that an amazing story? The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, their phone calls have doubled with this fairy tale ending to a hopeless, seemingly hopeless story by many like stories of people finding hope in this story and uh, hoping that in some way they might be reconnected in the same way. Um, with their families. The National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, to me, is a picture of Boaz in this story, uh, providing the hope for those that are pursuing hope in the midst of seeming hopelessness. That's that's how I kind of capture the story as we come to chapter 2. Absolute hopelessness. That might be where some of you are this morning. You might be feeling absolutely hopeless. If that's you this morning, as we come to Naomi, I want you to think, what did Naomi do in the midst of absolute hopelessness? Where are you to turn? Pursuing hope, looking for hope. Maybe that's where some of you are this morning, looking for hope. Feeling hopeless, but but looking for hope. That's Ruth. As we look at her, I want you to to, to ask, where did she look? And where can you look this morning as you're looking for hope? Then there's the third part of the story, the Boazes. And that's where some of us are this morning also. Those that God has blessed with a good job, with lots of hope, a good life, there to provide hope for others. That's the role that Boaz played. Are you providing hope for others? I hope that as we come to the end of this time this morning, you might be challenged to ask yourself, how would God use me to be a part of providing hope for hopeless people needing hope? So these are the. this is kind of the essence of the story as we come to, to Ruth chapter 2 this morning. Now, if you just remember back to last week, for those of you that were here, Naomi had lost everything, right? As I was reading chapter 1 again this week, it struck me like it's never struck me before. It says that um, in in chapter 1, it says, verse 1, it says, A man from Bethlehem and Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. And so Elimelech, he heads out in the time of famine to Moab and he hauls his wife and two sons with him. And then what does he do? He ups and dies. And his two sons, after marrying Moabite women, up and die and leave Naomi with nothing except 
a Moabite daughter-in-law who clings to her and is very devoted to her. But if you, if you understand the story, it really seems more like a liability than a blessing. She'd lost everything. I want you to look at the word. Just If you got your Bibles open, look at how Naomi, if we, I just want you to capture the, what she's feeling again in, Luke, in uh, Ruth chapter 1. Verse 13, she says at the end of verse 13, things are far more bitter for me than you, talking to Ruth, because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. That's strong language, isn't it? And maybe that's where some of you are this morning. You feel like God has raised his fist against you. Look at verse 20. The Almighty has made life very bitter for me. The Lord has brought me home empty. The Lord has caused me to suffer. The Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me. Now that's a gal that is at the end of her rope. She's lost everything. She's feeling absolutely hopeless. And who is she blaming? Well, it's pretty clear. <laughs> it's God. And that's often where we are in our hopelessness. When everything's been stripped away from us, we look at God and say, God, where are you? But I want you to see something else that's really important. If that's where you are at this morning, feeling absolutely hopeless, Naomi does something which I challenge you to do, which often we don't do in the midst of hopelessness, because what do we usually do in the midst of hopelessness? Nothing. (laughs) I mean, we feel paralyzed, don't we? We feel absolutely paralyzed and impotent to do anything, but I want you to see what Naomi does. What does she do? Anybody? She heads home. You see that? We can maybe miss that in the midst of her hopelessness. And that's what I encourage any of you this morning who are feeling paralyzed by hopelessness and feeling like God is against you, that you would head home. And I don't mean back to your parents, okay? I mean like the prodigal son. I mean, I really see in Naomi kind of like a... (laughs) Kind of like a prodigal son story where he raises his eyes in the midst of the pig pen where he's come to the end of everything. And what does he say? He says, man, my dad's servants have it better than this. (laughs) And the odds of him accepting me isn't very good because I took everything that was mine and I left and I blew it all so there's no reason he should welcome me home but I'm going to do it anywhere because do it anywhere. Anyway, thank you. Man, I lost the word. (laughs) I'm going to do it anyways because why? Because hope was with the Father. And so she headed home, not really hoping that there was going to be hope, but she headed home anyway. I encourage you, I plead with those of you that are here this morning feeling absolutely hopeless Take the first step home to the Father. Just begin that journey. And as you do, I hope you'll be encouraged by Ruth. That's who we see next. 
Ruth also seemed like she'd lost everything. She had nothing. Like I mentioned earlier, she's a widow. Her husband had died. She's a foreigner. And as she returns with Naomi to Israel, she's absolutely unwanted. In fact, notice the repetition over and over again. Look at chapter 1, verse 22. It's like it repeats it to put it in our minds who Ruth was. Verse 22, so Naomi returned from Moab accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the Moabite woman. Why did it have to say that? It's like every time I introduce myself, I have to say, Dave, the jerk. (laughs) I mean, that's really what this label is here. (laughs) You know, we're not supposed to agree agree with me. Look at verse 2, chapter 2. One day, Ruth, the Moabite. Same thing. Ruth, the Moabite. Look at verse 6. The foreman replied, after Boaz questioned, Who is that woman? The foreman replied, She is the young woman from Moab. I mean, it's, it's just that stigma is following her. And so Ruth feels it very keenly. Look at verse 10. Ruth falls at his feet. This is Boaz's feet when he showed her kindness. She thanks him warmly and she says, What have I done to deserve such kindness? I'm only a foreigner. I'm a Moabite. And so as we come to Ruth, we come to a gal that's she's very keenly aware of who she is and that she's unwanted. She's a widow, she's a foreigner, she's a Moabite. But what else? She's taking care of an old mother-in-law who's suffering from serious depression with no means to support them during really ungodly times. If you remember back to the first verse in the book of Ruth, it says, in the days when the judges ruled in Israel... A severe famine, it goes on. And that's the introduction and the context of the story. In the midst of this horrible, the worst time in Israel's history, the theme of the book being a time when everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And man, I tell you, if you want to read some gruesome stories, as I, read, as I come to the end of the book of Judges, it just makes me sick. It is. It's sickening as you read what Israel had become as everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so it's become so bad that Ruth has no reason to expect sympathy or kindness from anyone. And Naomi, I don't even think, wants her out the door. Doesn't even want to let her out the door because she's afraid. As we see later on, I mean, towards the end of the um, chapter 2, she's afraid that Uh, Look at verse 22. She says, you might be harassed in other fields. She knows what it's like in Israel. (laughs) And what might happen to a young woman that lands in the wrong field. And that's Ruth's situation. And yet, amazingly, in the midst of all of that, and Naomi's stark hopelessness, Ruth pursues hope. 
Ruth pursues hope. What Naomi had lost, it seems that, and this is unspoken, but what Naomi had lost, it seems that Ruth had gained from Naomi. As for years, Naomi, I believe, had told her stories of the God of Israel. So that Ruth, even though Naomi had lost hope, Ruth had gained hope in that God so that she clung to Naomi and said, your God will be my God. I want your God. And I want your God to be my God. And now with Naomi beat down by life and discouraged and without hope, it's like Ruth is pursuing hope for both of them. And I think that's where some of us need to be this morning. Some of us, I think, need to be encouraged to hope like Ruth. And I think some of us, God is calling to pursue hope for another person with them. The question we ask as we come to chapter 2, though, then is, where does Ruth find her hope as she pursues it? Two things. The first thing I want you to see is the promises of God. If you're in need of hope this morning, number one, you can find hope and need to find hope in the promises of God. Where do we see that? Look at, look at verse, verse 2. And we actually see a glimpse of it in chapter 1, verse 22. As they arrive in Bethlehem in late spring, what does it say? They arrive at the beginning of the barley harvest. It's like a little teaser that gives us a clue of what's to come. And what's to come is in verse 2 of chapter 2. When Ruth the Moabite says to Naomi, let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do this. Now, why would she ask Naomi to do this in the midst of a godless time in Israel when everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes and nobody cares about anybody else? Because God made a promise and a commandment in Israel. And it appears in Leviticus 19, if you want to turn back there, keep your finger in Ruth, but look back to Leviticus 19. It's the third book in the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. Chapter 19, verse 9. And this is a command that God gave his people. When you harvest the crops of your land, do not harvest the grain along the edges of your fields and do not pick up what the harvesters drop. It is the same with your grape crop. Do not strip every last bunch of grapes from the vines and do not pick up the grapes that fall to the ground. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner, the Moabite, who is living among you. I am the Lord, your God. A promise. And from the stories that Naomi told Ruth, she clung to that promise and she believed that promise. And I think it's with reticence and and reluctance that as I read this, it's like Ruth saying, let me go. And and Naomi replies, oh, all right, my daughter, go ahead. I, I think she doesn't want her to because she's afraid for what will happen to her or what might happen to her. But believing the promise and the command that God has given, Ruth goes. There's another promise. The hint of it is in verse 1. Now there was a wealthy 
an influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. Now, why would the chapter start out that way? It's introducing a character, but why would it start out that way? Because it's just a hint of what we see in verse 20 and what we read earlier. Look, look down to verse 20. May the Lord bless him, Naomi told her daughter-in-law. Boaz is showing his kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. That almost sounds a little sick, doesn't it? I mean, when I read it the first time, some of you think, that's kind of gross. He's showing his kindness to your dead husband. I don't think it was going to help him much, was it? Or is it? That man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. Turn back to Deuteronomy, verse chapter 25. Deuteronomy 25, the fifth book in the Bible. Deuteronomy 25. Verse 5. If two brothers are living together on the same property and one of them dies without a son, his widow may not be married to anyone from outside the family. Instead, her husband's brother should marry her and have intercourse with her to fulfill the duties of a brother-in-law. The first son she bears to him will be considered the son of the dead brother so that his name will not be forgotten in Israel. And so a command in Israel, for what purpose? In order to prevent someone in Israel's name from being forgotten. And so Boaz is this, has the ability to be, what it's called here, one of the redeemers, one of the ones who can redeem the brother's name and his inheritance so that it isn't lost in the land of Israel. And Ruth, despite what Naomi has said in chapter 1 and what we looked at last week, where Naomi says, what good is it? I mean, if I'm, if, if I'm married and have another kid, I mean, he's not going to be old enough by the time you're too old to have kids. I mean... Stay here in Moab. But, but Ruth, it's like more than Naomi, latches onto that command, latches onto that promise. And believing that promise goes with Naomi into Israel. What do we learn from Ruth? That we can hope in the promises of God. That we can hope in the promises of what God has said Way back in the law, wherever he has said it, he will do. And it's one of the two pillars of our foundation of hope, the promises of God. As I was thinking about the promises, I thought of an old hymn, and I want to I quote it. For, I would sing it for you. But Standing on the promises. Any of you know that? Great. Listen to these words. They're great. Standing on the promises of Christ my King, Through eternal ages, let his praises ring. Glory in the highest, I will shout and sing. Standing on the promises of God. Standing on the promises that cannot fail. When the howling winds, howling storms of doubt and fear assail. By the living word of God, I shall prevail. Standing on the promises of God. 
Standing on the promises I now can see, perfect, present, cleansing in the blood for me. Standing in the liberty where Christ makes free. Standing on the promises of God. Standing on the promises of Christ the Lord, bound to him eternally by love's strong cord. Overcoming daily with the Spirit's sword. What's the Spirit's sword? The Word of God. Standing on the promises of God. Standing on the promises, I cannot fall. Listening every moment to the Spirit's call. Resting in my Savior as my all in all. Standing on the promises of God. And the chorus, standing, standing, standing on the promises of God my Savior. Standing, standing, I'm standing on the promises of God. What a great cure for hopelessness. The promises of God. We learn that from Ruth. Where else do we learn that she found her hope? Not just the promises of God, but the person of God himself. The person of God himself. It goes back to when she's in Moab with Naomi, and Naomi tries to get her to stay, and, and Ruth, says, <laughs> Ruth says, no, your God will be my God. And in two ways... Two ways that we see Ruth captured by the person of God. The first one is in um, chapter 2, verse 2, towards the end of it, where Naomi replies. She says, all right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. And I love the wording here because it gives us a glimpse of where Ruth's hope is and of who God is. It says, as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz. As it happened. I love the original wording. The original wording says, her chance chanced upon the field belonging to Boaz. And the wording is to just make it so clear to us, almost in the extreme, that it wasn't by chance. It was all by God's sovereign, gracious working that in the midst of all the fields she could have ended up at, she ended up at the field of a redeemer, Boaz. What looked like chance was really God behind the scenes working on her behalf, and she was holding to that his sovereignty, and also to his mercy. Look at verse 12. Verse 12. As Boaz responds to Ruth, he says, May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you. That's Ruth. And that's why she came, because she... She came knowing that God was good. And that in the midst of the hopelessness of her and Naomi's situation, she could find refuge there. Like a mother wing. And one of the most graphic stories, pictures that I've, that I, and I've shared this in the past is this picture of a farmer walking 
to his burned out his burned out barn where he thought he'd lost everything and there was his mother hen all puffed up and he disgusted he kicked her and out from under this burned out kicked cartridge a bunch of little chicks ran where they had found refuge and that's Ruth in the midst of absolute hopelessness knowing that her hope was what in the promises of God he's faithful and in his person in his sovereignty and in his mercy that in the midst of the hopelessness of life you got to know we got to remember God is good and God is great and that hope is found in his promises and in his person that's Ruth and so what is the result what is the result as we come to kind of the end of this story? The result is Boaz, right? Every good story has a little romance to it. <laughs> the end result is Boaz. Now notice, and this is really important. Notice what I didn't say. I said the end result was Boaz. It's really important you get this. I didn't say her hope was Boaz. And boy, do we ever mess that up. We are constantly looking for hope in people, in other people. Now, Boaz was God's provision as God was Ruth's hope, but Boaz wasn't her hope. Do you get that? God provided Boaz as Ruth hoped in God. And man, we miss this up. We're so often looking for people to rescue us and people to provide our hope when only God can do that and provide that. And he, and he uses means, right? He uses means. He uses Boaz here. But Boaz is, is God's provision for Ruth as she hopes in God. Now this is obvious as Boaz, is, if you caught the, the tone of the story, as Boaz has fallen head over heels for Ruth pretty quick. I, I, we can pick that up, right? I mean, I mean, read this down here. He says, um, he tells his people in verse 15, when Ruth went back to work again, Boaz ordered his young men, let her gather grain right among the sheaves without stopping her. Now, the way that gleaning worked is that the harvesters harvested and then whatever they missed, the poor and the foreigners could pick up. But Boaz is saying, I'm losing my place here. Verse 15, let her gather grain right among the sheaves and then further pull out some of the heads of barley and drop them on purpose for her. This guy is already a basket case. (laughs) But did you notice in the midst of all of this, Ruth's response? It's like she's grateful for what he's doing, but she's ignorant of what he's doing. I mean, that's what I get from this story. And why is that? Because Ruth's hope isn't in Boaz. It's in God. And her focus is so fully 
focused on pursuing hope in God. She's grateful for God's provision, but she's not hoping in Boaz. It's really important we see that. I want you to notice what Boaz just happens to be as God provides him for Ruth and Naomi. He just happens to be wealthy. Well, that's nice. He just happens to be a close relative, a redeemer, as it's described in verse 20. He just happens to be single. That's nice. Godly in the midst of godless times. Did that strike you? In the midst of the judges, Boaz arrives from Bethlehem and he says, The Lord be with you. And Man, Ruth must sing, What is that I hear? <laughs> and then his harvesters replied, The Lord bless you. What an amazing coincidence to land in the field of a wealthy redeemer who's single and godly. And what else? It's not mentioned in Ruth, but it's mentioned somewhere else in the book of Matthew. It just so happens that Boaz is the son of Rahab. Remember that? It just so happens that this guy that God is preparing to show kindness to a foreigner, a Moabite, happens to be the son of a Canaanite prostitute who was shown amazing mercy by God as she was living in the the city of Jericho. She hid the spies and God spared her life and her family and she became the wife of Salmon and they became the husband and wife, the parents of Boaz. Amazing how God works in his sovereignty and his mercy to minister to hopeless people and to accomplish his purposes. And there is no question that God, like, hand-picked, or we could say God-picked, Boaz to be the provider. So let's, let's summarize here. So from Naomi, we learn... If you're here this morning gripped by hopelessness, start heading home. Back to the God of Israel. You might not feel like there's going to be hope when you get there, like the prodigal son, like the dad's not going to welcome me, but start heading home. From your remembrance, from your memory, from what you've been told by other people of God and his promises and his faithfulness, start heading home. If you're where Ruth is this morning, you're, you're part of that hopelessness, but you're, you're ready to pursue hope. I encourage you, don't pursue it in a person. I, it burdens me so much as I talk to so many people who keep, no matter how many times they're disappointed and nobody, no matter how many times they know circumstances will change and people will fail them, that they still try to find hope in the next person. Pursue hope in the promises of God, his eternal word that is true and everlasting. You can stand on him. And the person of God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the God of Naomi and the God of Ruth, and he's the God that we can hope in today.
Maybe you're someone who could come alongside a hopeless person like Naomi, like Ruth did, and help provide hope for them as together you bring them, encourage them with God's promises in this person. And finally, what can we learn from Boaz? I actually think that there's probably a lot of Boazes here this morning. Um, People that God has blessed to be a provision for people who need hope. You know, we call our, um, our ministry is called Hope in Christ Ministries. And uh, every time I write a grant or I have to write the mission statement of who we are, it's bringing the hope of Christ to the pain on the streets. That's who we are. That's what God has called us because I've sat in enough courtrooms and I've been on the streets and ministered enough people to know that hope is in Christ. And God has blessed a lot of us to be that provision of hope to hopeless people. That's, that's why we exist. And you know, you, you want to know one of the most discouraging things for me though is, I, being a part of what I do, I um, am asked to speak at other churches. And um, a couple weeks I'll be speaking in, at another church. And one of the most discouraging things for me is as I sit and I, and I share and I preach and I share the hope of Christ for hopeless, and I, and, I, and I share about the hopeless, is, is, the, is the small response I see to people who actually want to be a part of helping the hopeless. And I'll, I'll speak to a group of hundreds of people, and, and one person will come up to me and say, oh, man, how can, I, how can I be a part of providing hope to the hopeless? And it wrenches me. It really, it just tears me apart. And I'll be honest, it also makes me really angry. (laughs) Because there's an old song, and I can't remember who the artist is, who says we've been blessed to be a blessing. Is that? Scott Wesley Brown. Brown. It's an old, great song. We've been blessed to be a blessing. And, And I tell you, so many of us have been blessed so much. We've been blessed with amazing jobs. We've been blessed with amazing families. We've been blessed. In in the way that God has blessed you, are you being a blessing to others? I, um, in the time since we've been meeting here um, in this building, Coffee Oasis, we used to meet in our home, a little house church. And uh, since we've been meeting here, um, and we've had, there's two gray boxes on the posts. I think we've been here, what, a year and a half, two years? I don't know, something like that. I don't think I've ever mentioned them because I don't like talking about money because I know people don't like me to talk about money and I like people to like me, you know? So. <laughs> but as I was, as I was going over this Boaz story, I was convicted that if we are going to be Boazes, those of us that God has blessed, if we are going to be a blessing to the hopeless world out there around us, then we together have got to be a part of the solution. We've got to be Boazes. What amazes me is how generous Boaz was (laughs) 
And I think somebody's in love. But isn't that what we're supposed to be? Aren't we supposed to be in love with Jesus? I mean, he who was rich for our sakes became poor so that we through his poverty might become rich so we could keep it all to ourselves. We've been blessed to be a blessing. And unless we are the Boazes that God has called us to be blessing other people, and all we're going to be is a bunch of people like in the other fields surrounding Boazes who are of no hope and help to hopeless people. Selfish, keeping it all to ourselves. So some of us here today are Naomi's, some of us are Ruth's, some of us are Boaz's. What is God calling you to do as you've heard this story? I, um, I'm going to just share one little, one, one little story. I wasn't going to because I know it's going to embarrass somebody, but I'm going to share it anyway. Because to me it captures what God is calling us to be, the heart he's calling us to be. If we really understand C.T. Studd, this isn't the story, this is just an introduction. C.T. Studd, a guy who gave it all up, he was one of the, he was from a wealthy family in England, the number one popular sports person, cricket player in, in, in England, and he gave it all up to go to China and then to Africa as a missionary. He died there. He gave it all up. He said, because of this, he said, if if Jesus is really God and if he really died on the cross for me, there's nothing too great that I shouldn't be willing to do for him, right? As a part of our vision as a ministry, one of the things that we're looking to do, um, maybe not too far down the road, is to develop an intensive training program where we can take kids off the streets, they can live in a home, get education, training, life skills. They can get everything as a part of job training and then, and then be, get a job somewhere else. As we've been talking about this, out of the blue, my wife said a few nights ago, she said, we should have our house be that house. Now, we live in a large house. For any of you know, we've had 120 people live with us over the last 20 years. Um... And uh, so we have about a seven-bedroom house. Um, And um, off the kitchen, we have a back room. And my wife's suggestion was that we remodel. We put a shower in the back room where there's a toilet and a sink. And we turn that into a small little living area for ourselves so that the rest of our house (laughs) can be used to bring hope to hopeless people. Is that where your heart is this morning? That's Boaz. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are a God of such hope. You are so good. You are so great. And God, Jesus, in your wealth in heaven, you left it all behind to become poor for us so that through your poverty, through your death on the cross on our behalf, we might become rich. We could find hope. Help us in the same way to pursue hope, 
and to bring hope to other people. Amen.